Hi BCC family, great to be continuing with you in the first conference. The title for my message this evening is Singing in Babylon. We're going to go to the book of Daniel, be looking at a, a few verses from there, and then overviewing the book and extrapolating some key principles from the entire book. Now, shameless book plug coming up here, because I hope you'll be encouraged strengthened, uh, even inspired and challenged from tonight's message. And so let me encourage you to pick up a copy of this book, Singing in Babylon, Finding Purpose in Life's Second Choices. It's released on February the 1st and you can pre-order it right now. Well, not right now. Wait till after I've finished preaching if you wouldn't mind. Let's dive into Daniel, Daniel chapter 1 and it says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. One of the reasons why I am so glad to be with you uh, for the BCC First Conference tonight is because, quite, quite frankly, I'm delighted to be anywhere. I am one of those sad men who invariably, when I go on a journey, I get lost. If Kay, my wife, is with me, we get lost together. We've got a good marriage, great marriage, but we occasionally experience navigational tension. We're frequently lost despite the fact that we've got, both got maps on our phones, and I've got this rather terse, irritated lady on my phone giving me directions, and Kay has chosen to have an Australian surfer dude with a six-pack. I'm not quite sure why she made that choice. We both get lost. I pull the car over and uh, greet a hapless passing pedestrian, asking them for some instructions. They tell me, second left, third right, turn left at the lights, and then I get really bored with listening. I think, my, this is numbing. I'd rather be lost right now. I'm not great with listening to directions or instructions. Recently, we bought a TV. We went into the store and the, uh, the sales assistant, apparently nine years of age and a technological genius, I said to him, I said, look, I'm not very practical with stuff. Do you think I'll be able to put this TV together um, in its frame? And uh, he said, sir, any idiot could um, put this TV together. Uh, after two hours back at the house of very unchristian muttering, I'm going to track that young man down and tell him that I'm not just any idiot. I'm not great with directions. When we turn to the book of Daniel, there are some wonderfully relevant, vital directives and instructions for us to be found there. But this is one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible. Rather like the book of Revelation, which we've turned into a speculative eschatological jigsaw, 
Daniel is often a, a book that confuses us. It's very complex and we can jump to false conclusions about it. We can ignore it or we can just focus in on the lion's den story and the fiery furnace story. It was Eugene Peterson who said, I've never understood why Daniel, who for so long held a prominent position in the biblical pantheon of the wise in our times, became marginalised into a children's song, Dare to be a Daniel, and depersonalised into a puzzle piece in a scenario for the end times. You see, contained in this book, there are nothing less than vital keys on helping us to live as followers of Jesus in the real world. It's the story of exile. 2,600 years ago, the nation of Judah were taken into exile. Now, the nation had been warned by the prophet Jeremiah that judgment was coming. Tragically, they ignored that warning and found themselves under attack from the approaching Babylonian army. And then the city of Jerusalem was under a terrible siege for months on end. At last, Jerusalem falls and many people die, and the temple is plundered, and then some of the brightest and the best are deported, uprooted from their homes, carted off to Babylon, including Daniel and some of his friends. Now, now imagine how that felt. These were young men, young men. Uh, we read that they were Yadadim, to quote the Hebrew word, frequently used for lads. Some commentators, most commentators, excuse me, believe that they were probably somewhere between the ages of 12 to 18. Historians believe that Nebuchadnezzar, that the Babylonians, began a serious education program at the age of 14. And it might be that this was why Nebuchadnezzar brought them into his training program at that time. Also, these young men were used to being uh, in a privileged place in life. Rabbinic tradition holds that the four of them were descendants of King Hezekiah. Uh, that's based on Isaiah 39. And we read in Daniel 1 that many of them were members or they, they were members of the royal family. Now they are displaced. They are taken away from their beloved Jerusalem, from the promised land, from the temple that was at the heart of their faith, more about that later, and they are effectively imprisoned. They are taken to a, a boom town. Babylon must have been so intimidating to these young exiles. Archaeologists and historians describe a fabulous, opulent designer city built on both sides of the river Euphrates, the greatest, the largest the most beautiful city on the planet at that time. It was 200 miles square, surrounded by a double fortified wall. The walls were 80 feet thick and 320 feet high. And the right at the centre of the city was the temple of the foundation of heaven and earth, a seven-storey temple dedicated to Marduk, one of the Babylonian gods, 299 feet high, a skyscraper of its day. It was a staggering feat of engineering. And then, of course, there were also the Hanging Gardens, the famous Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was situated in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Here's the point. The Babylonians had the big city. They had all the money. They had the power. They had the architectural brilliance. And the Hebrew four would have been taught that the idols of the other nations were as nothing dead 
powerless. And if that was true, how come the Babylonians were doing so well? But not only that, did you notice from our reading how it's emphasized that Nebuchadnezzar plundered the temple and took items to the temple of his God? It really is emphasized in the sentences that flow there. You see, back in those days, the popular view was that if your nation was beaten by another nation, it's because their God was more powerful than your God. So there is a sense of spiritual conflict, anxiety about this whole story. They were in exile. And here's the point. So are we. So are we. This message, the story of Daniel, the message of Daniel is so relevant to us because we are actually in exile today. Now, there's a sense in which all human beings everywhere are experiencing or have experienced exile. You see, we were made to live in the Garden of Eden, if I can put it like that. We were made to live in relationship with God. But sin has called, caused us to be banished from that garden, exiled from that garden. The Tower of Babel or Babel built as a result of that situation. Now we know that Jesus has come to rescue us, to bring us home to God. But all human beings are exiles in one sense. And then all Christians in every age are exiles. In the New Testament there are a number of occasions when we are called foreigners and strangers on the earth. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12, Peter, having begun his letter by addressing the Christians as scattered exiles, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. In Philippians 3, we read, Our, citizens, our citizenship is in heaven. You see, as Christians... We are no longer in the garden of Genesis and we are, not, we are not yet in the garden of Revelation. We are exiles. Isn't it also true that in the age in which we live, we feel increasingly exiled, alienated? The Christian voice, no longer the majority, but the minority. In a postmodern culture, what's postmodernism? It's where you've lost the core story about life. And when you lose the core, the, the core story, you lose the plot. We feel exiled. We live in a culture of liberal fundamentalism, where you can believe anything you want to believe because we all believe in tolerance. But if you part company with the general liberal consensus, then you will be alienated. You'll be called judgmental. You're out of touch. This is hate language. You will feel like you're out in the cold. And Christians respond to these challenges in one of two ways. Some become separatists. Let's just separate ourselves from the big bad world of exile. Let's just keep ourselves to ourselves and try and be holy until Jesus comes back. Others of us can drift into syncretism, which is where you just become like the people around you and there is no discernible, dif no discernible difference between you and everybody else that um, surrounds you. Kenneth Leach said, as Christians of the 21st century, we are exiles, strangers and pilgrims, aliens in a strange land. We will need to learn the strategies of survival and to sing the songs of Zion in the midst of Babylon. And this isn't easy. 
The question is asked in Psalm 137 and verse 4, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? It's a question that we are considering this evening, even as we've experienced the particular exile of lockdown in recent months. Daniel lived a second choice life for his whole life. He never would return to Jerusalem. What's a second choice life? What are second choice circumstances? They're simply circumstances that we would not choose. I mentioned this on Sunday morning. Very often, just every ordinary day can include first choices and second choices. Just think about it for a moment. You get a table at your favorite restaurant and they're actually open and you're able to get a table there and you're excited about that. It's your first choice. But then when you pull up outside the restaurant and get out of the car, you catch a nail after an expensive manicure. Uh, I hate it when that happens. And uh, second choice, then you go into the restaurant, you have a beautiful meal. First choice, but um, on the way home, you have to drive on the motorway that surrounds Birmingham and they've got roadworks planned there for the next 470 years. Second choice, you pull up outside your house and the parking space that you love to use is there, free, open for you, first choice. But then as you reverse back into the parking space, you reverse back into your neighbor's car and he has a very large, hungry dog. Second choice, intersecting at the trivial level. But let's face it, for some of us, second choice can impact us at a far more tragic level with sickness and bereavement and unemployment and breakdown of relationships. Second choice living. Daniel didn't just survive in his second choice world in Babylon, but with God's help, he and his friends were able to thrive. And I believe, I believe that the same can be true for us. So again, let's draw some principles from their story. Let's know, first of all, that we need to affirm our identity in Christ. Affirm our identity in Christ, a great thing for us to do at the beginning of this new year. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Perhaps you've seen the musical Les Miserables. Uh, I've seen the stage play three or four times, cried every time. I've seen the film, not so good in my opinion. Perhaps you'll remember the cry. My name is Jean Valjean. This principal character, um, the story is set in Toulouse in France in 1820, Victor Hugo's classic story. Valjean, a prisoner on parole, branded by his past. He experiences grace but he also experiences constant persecution and oppression from his former captor, Gervais, this bullying former prison guard and police inspector. He will never call Jean Valjean by name, but only by number, prisoner 24601. You're nobody, you're nothing, you don't have a name, you're just 24601. The loss of a name is about the loss of identity and of significance. And when Daniel and his friends arrived in Babylon, one of the first things that happened was that their names were changed. 
The name Daniel means Elohim, one of the Hebrew names for God. Elohim is my judge. But his new name, Belteshazzar, means may Bel protect his life. Bel was one of the, the godettes, the idols of Babylon. Hananiah means Yahweh, the personal name for the God of the Bible. Yahweh is gracious. And Shadrach means Aku is exalted. Aku is another Babylonian god. These young men had their names changed in a city that in rebellion towards God, you remember the story in Genesis 11:4 where they said, we will make a name for ourselves. That rebellious anti-God city is now not only making a name for themselves in terms of their reputation, but they are stealing Daniel and his friends. They're stealing their names and they are giving them new names. We know that Nebuchadnezzar probably stole around 5,400 items from the temple. We read about that in Ezra chapter 1. And you can just imagine Daniel and his friends in Babylon going and viewing those items to remind them, if you will, of the glorious days gone by. Their identity was under threat. When Jesus came to live to teach us how to live, to die, to rise again, he experienced challenges against his identity. His identity was affirmed in Luke chapter 3 when the father said, this is my beloved son, I am pleased with him. That's the affirmation of his prophetic identity. But then immediately, Luke chapter 4, he is in the wilderness, identity is undermined as Satan hisses, if you are the son of of God. Our identity matters. That's why it's a great opportunity for us at the beginning of this year to declare in word and heart and lifestyle, I belong to Christ. This is who I am. This is who we as church are together. Secondly, be a lifelong learner. Be a lifelong learner. We read in Daniel 1 that these young men showed aptitude, aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed and quick to understand. I became a Christian at the age of 17, about 500 years ago. And as a brand new Christian, I was working in a bank. And I won't name the bank because that would sully the reputation of Barclays because I was the world's worst banker, possibly partially responsible for various global financial crises. I was a brand new Christian with a big Bible and a Jesus badge and every lunchtime um, I would go across the street to Valentine's Park in Ilford in Essex with my big Bible. I had a voracious appetite, a real hunger to learn about God. If we are going to thrive in Babylon in exile, we need to be committed to be lifelong learners, keen to learn and willing to be adaptable in the changing seasons of life. These young men, uncomfortable truth though this is, these young men were thrust into what was effectively a Harry Potter school of learning, but they threw themselves into it and ultimately we read that the king found them 10 times better than all of the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. They did not give themselves to the occult, but they gave themselves to understand the language, the practices, the culture of 
Babylon. They were willing to keep learning and they were willing to be, be adaptable and to change and uh, to adapt to their circumstances. Do you remember Popeye the sailor man? I loved Popeye. I was a bit bewildered by him because he was really attractive to olive oil and I could never quite get the attraction. But Popeye the sailor man used to have this song, I am what I am and that's all I am. I'm Popeye the sailor man. And I believe it's possible for us after a first flush of passion and commitment to Jesus to settle down into a mediocrity, to settle down into sameness and to surrender to sameness, to not change, to not grow, to not keep learning. Let me ask this question. When was the last time you changed? When was the last time you said, I got that wrong? When was the last time we learned something new and applied that into our lives? If we're going to thrive in Babylon, we've got to be lifelong learners. Thirdly, let's be a blessing to Babylon. Let's bless Babylon. Again, we read, the king talked with these young men and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. I referred to that earlier. They were a blessing in this bewildering, confusing situation in which they found themselves. Years ago, I was on a transatlantic flight um, sitting next to a lady and I introduced myself and I, I asked her what she did for a living. And she told me that she was a clinical psychotherapist based out of San Francisco. And I said, oh, that's interesting. What is your area of special interest? And she said, well, I like to help Christians to get out of Christianity. And then she said, Jeff, what do you do for a living? And I said, I I'm a plumber. Actually, I didn't. I said, uh, I like to help people who are not Christians get into Christianity. And I can still remember the look on her face. It was a look of, of pity. It was a look that said, oh, you, you are such a sad, pathetic person. You are so out of touch. She said, you don't believe in all that Jesus stuff, do you? I am the way, the truth and the life. She said, those are absolute statements. No one believes in absolute statements anymore. I said, are you sure? She said, yes. Do you see what I did with that absolute statement about absolute statements? So I thought I'd push it a little bit. And I said, well, maybe the idea that we are flying in an aeroplane is an absolute statement. Maybe we are 36,000 feet aloft in a large boat. And she looked at me and she said, you may be right. I thought I'll push it a bit because I'm a bit like that. I, I said, well, maybe we're not in a large boat or an airplane. Maybe we are aloft in a large Jaffa orange. And this highly educated lady said, you may be right, Jeff. And I didn't say it because it would have been very, very rude. But I thought, perhaps you need to make an appointment to see yourself. Again, I did not say that. But the idea that she was communicating to me was that you Christians, you're absolutely irrelevant. You're crazy to believe what you believe. You have nothing to offer. These young men were a blessing to Babylon. And I want to celebrate the connections that you as a church make in your community. And I want to call us in this new year to be confident about what we bring in our world. Do you remember that, that famous Monty Python sketch, what did the Romans ever do for us? And in, in the humorous dialogue that goes on, finally the person who asks the question says, all right, 
But apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, the fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? And I think sometimes we look at the church like that. Even we as Christians can look at the church's history like that. We have got some horrible history as the Christian church. We need to own that. It is horrendous. The heretic burning, the philandering and the murderous popes, the crusades, turning a blind eye on racism, apartheid and slavery, oppressing women, offering indulgences, selling heaven, offering heaven for payment. The list of horrendous acts is long. But then let's look again. Because throughout history, the church has blessed Babylon, bringing values and ethics and art and architecture and healthcare and education and building great universities and promoting literacy and morality. Just as in Daniel's day, we can bring the wisdom of God. We claim to personally know the one who designed the universe. So he knows stuff. He knows everything about us and what we need. And we can offer principles about marriage and about friendship. Dynamic money principles, financial principles that are found, for example, in Proverbs. We have practical teaching that can help in reconciliation and forgiveness. When South Africa ended the evil system of apartheid, she turned to the church for help with the healing, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission headed up by Bishop Desmond Tutu. We can provide insight on leadership. Christian leaders are called upon to lead volunteers, who and volunteers are changing the world, but it, it can be challenging to lead volunteers because the normal constraints of the employer and employee are just not in place. We offer a life with purpose, one worth sacrificing for, the answers to many mysteries. We offer a life so purposeful that many died rather than surrender to an alternative when we consider the martyrs. We offer the possibility of the supernatural and the miraculous and freedom from addiction and divorce counselling and our buildings are used to serve our communities with creche facilities and youth groups and community meeting places and fitness classes and adult education and charity events and food banks and coffee mornings. There is so much and supremely, supremely, we bring the gospel. We bring the meaning of life. We point to the source of everything that is good, the solution to shame. We speak of the way that things should be. We are signposts to forever. In a world that seems like it's spinning out of control, we declare that there is a God. We bring a reason for environmental responsibility as good stewards, stewards of a planet that was only ever lent to us. We can serve and bless Babylon, I want to encourage you to continue that faithful service in your community and be confident, not arrogant, but confident about the message that you bring and the service that you offer. Fourthly, let's have a faith that is not dependent upon outcomes. A faith that is not dependent on outcomes. Let's go to the fiery furnace story. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to the king, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up 90 feet high. 
nine feet wide, this, this image, and the command given, bow down before it. Uh, but there's this incredible, almost reckless, crazy faith. These young men are resolute and calm. They are respectful as well. And they affirm the bigness of their God without hesitation. When they say that God is able to deliver us, the Hebrew word there means he is infinitely able to rescue us. But then they make one of the most remarkable and I believe for us helpful statements in the entire Bible. They say God can deliver us, but even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They are saying whatever happens, God can do it. But if he doesn't do what we want him to do, we're still not going to stop being faithful worshippers of the one true God. Regardless of the outcome, we are going to be faithful to him. Theirs was not a quid pro quo relationship with God. Theirs was a though faith, a though faith, and not an if faith. It was Pastor George Ross who said, I have served in the ministry 31 years and I have come to understand that there are two kinds of faith. One says, if everything goes well, if my life is prosperous, if I'm happy, if nobody I love dies, if I'm successful, then I'll believe in God, say my prayers, go to church and give what I can afford. The other says, though the cause of evil prosper, though I sweat in Gethsemane, though I must drink my cup at Calvary, nevertheless, precisely then will I trust the Lord who made me. So Job cries, though he slay me, yet but I trust him. This is so easy to talk about, more of a challenge to live. And I know that some of you watching me right now are navigating circumstances that are frankly harrowing and it's been going on for a while. My prayer for you is that you will not have an if faith that gambles your commitment to God on the outcome that you want or upon you receiving the outcome that you want but rather you will have a though faith, even, even if that prayer is not answered, even if this doesn't turn out the way I so desperately want it to turn out, I am not going to bow the knee to any other God or to the God of my own self-interest. I am going to continue to be faithful to the one true God. Number five, and that truth is this, we are a choir, not scattered soloists. We're a choir, we, we read that Daniel returned to his house and he explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Daniel was part not just of a friendship group, he was part of a praying community, a prayerful community. Uh, just recently, Kay and I, we've been asking ourselves, who's in our crew for the next decade. Jesus had his crew. He had the 12, but he also had Peter, James, and John as close confidence. They alone were asked to pray with him in Gethsemane. Without sounding like a line from the Ghostbusters movie, when trouble comes, who are you going to call? Who am I going to call? We've been thinking about that quite carefully. But let's also celebrate the, the truth of the vitality and the vital nature of the local church. Faith is never a solo event. We are called together so that as we sing our songs, as we pray our prayers, as we serve together, as we hear teaching, 
as we hear the Holy Spirit in our gatherings together, so we are strengthened as a choir and never as soloists. It was Stanley Hauerwas who said, to be a resident alien is a formula for loneliness that few of us can sustain. Indeed, it's almost impossible to minister alone because our loneliness can too quickly turn into self-righteousness or self-hate. Christians can survive only by supporting one another through the countless small acts through which we tell one another that we are not alone, that God is with us. Friendship is not, therefore, accidental to the Christian life. Thank God for your church. And I want to just make a statement that might sound a little strange. Perhaps you should stop attending your church. Maybe you should stop attending BC. And I can almost uh, hear Pastor Mark and the team panicking as I make that statement. Let me explain. When I think about my family, my children, my, our grandchildren, I don't attend them. They're, they're grafted into my heart. I think about them constantly. My commitment to them is not casual. It is deep. We need to go beyond church attendance into something that is far deeper. And we need to maintain our commitment together when things get tough in fellowship and they will let me make a second statement and that is that if you've been part of BCC for more than six months and nothing about you has irritated you or upset you yet you are very possibly clinically dead because if you want to get upset about something well then just join a church there are plenty of options but let's realize the source of strength that the church is. Let's ensure that we are playing our part in it. It is a joy to be part of the choir, if you will, the choir of God. Well, the last thing is this, and that is that we need to have a true vision, a true vision of the Son of Man in glory by faith. Do you remember on Sunday morning, I talked about Jesus' words about uh, us being overcomers. And uh, I shared with you how the Apostle John um, had this revelation. It's contained in the book of Revelation of the Son of Man. And now as we come to this last point, we see that just as John had a revelation of the Son of Man, so Daniel had a revelation of the Son of Man as well. We say, in my vision at night, John said, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdoms one that will never be destroyed. As I begin to draw this to a conclusion, and we preachers often say that, we say, and now in conclusion, we do that to give you hope and then we often carry on for a while, but I try and make my conclusion fairly short. Just as John needed a revelation of the ascended Christ, so Daniel needed a revelation of the glorified Son of Man to sustain him, the truth of the victory of Christ and of his second coming. And I think, as we conclude this time, that we need to affirm once again the truth that Christ is coming again. Daniel knew when he had that vision that Babylon was temporary and only his God was eternal. He declares the truth about the wisdom of God, the power of God, the God who, 
who changes the times and seasons. And I love this. In Daniel, he speaks about the God who sees what is in, he knows what lies in the darkness. You see, he has a revelation. And we read, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. You see, what we're part of is forever. It's eternal. It's Jesus and his kingdom. We are about the most significant business, if I can put it like that, that there has ever been in the universe. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so, as we look back on a year that I'm sure we're all glad to see the back of, as we look forward, hopefully, to what will be a better year as the vaccines are rolled out and as finally, please God, we get on top of this coronavirus crisis. Let's affirm our identity in Christ, who we are in him. Recognising that identity will come under attack. Let's offer God learning hearts, wanting to be lifelong learners, not just gaining more information, but genuinely being committed to change, the Holy Spirit working within us. Let's continue to be a blessing in Babylon, serving our communities, but also being confident about the message that we share and the contribution that we make. Let's have a though faith, not an if faith. Faith that's not dependent on a particular outcome, trust, whatever the unfolding circumstances. Let's be committed to each other, committed to church when the going gets tough. We are a scattered, we're not scattered soloists, we are a choir. And let's ask God for a greater sense of his greatness and power as we reflect again on the truth that Christ is the overcomer and he is coming again. In your journey together, in 2021. May you know God's peace, his guidance, his strength, his power, his love. God bless you.